Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The war in Europe, people flee an expected major Russian offensive in the east of Ukraine. Ireland wants to target Russian oil imports. Uh, that is certainly contributing to financing this war. Uh, and uh, in our view, uh, we need to cut off that uh, financing of war. Dublin disruption as fuel price protesters stage wildcat action in the heart of the capital city, demanding price caps on fuel. The protesters here today is desperation, Biden. They see no future, they need to see no future for the family, they see no future for everyone else's family because they've been put out of business. In the battle for the future of France and the EU, President Macron faces far-right challenger Marine Le Pen for the presidency of a major European power. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. We start with some breaking news tonight and coalition leaders have discussed plans to temporarily reduce the VAT rate on gas and electricity energy from 13.5% to 9%. The emergency measure which would require legislation will be discussed at a cabinet meeting on Wednesday for approval. The three coalition party leaders were discussing the cost of living crisis at a meeting tonight. Well, I'm joined by Fianna Fáil TD Dara Kaliri, Independent TD Richard O'Donoghue, journalist Geraldine Herbert and Independent.ie Ireland editor Fiannan Sheehan. Um, to come to you first, uh, Fiannan, on this, uh, tell us a little bit more about the lines that we're hearing from government tonight about this cut in VAT on some energy. Tell us about it. So some energy uh, and won't, won't satisfy everybody. And obviously a VAT cut um, benefits everybody right across the board. So allied to that then is an extension uh, on the fuel allowance, uh, a three-week lump sum that will be specifically targeted at those in, in, in receipt of it, obviously those uh, on, on lower incomes. So it's the, the latest in, in a long stream of, uh, of measures. But obviously, if it requires legislation, I don't think it's going to take the four months that the, the 200 euro rebate is, is, is going to take. Presumably, Dara could, could tell you it could be to be done it can be run through fairly fairly rapidly. Uh, and this will then tie into to the idea that, you know, you need, you're running into your regulation problems and so on and so forth, and that this is a, a temporary cut, so how long it lasts, at least it, it gets you through uh, in the medium term. But it's not really something that's, that's uh, something they're going to be looking at in the longer term. 
Okay, we'll talk a little bit about that later and the cost of living crisis. Uh, but first, the government has received an internal report into the Tony Houlihan controversy. At the weekend, the chief medical officer indicated he would not take up a secondment with Trinity College Dublin. Our news correspondent, Zara King, is at the Department of Health for us tonight with the latest on this story. And Zara, tell us the background to all of this. Well, Claire, for anyone who hasn't been following this, I suppose it's been running over the last two weeks in terms of the fact that Tony Houlihan announced that he was leaving his job as the Chief Medical Officer two weeks ago on Friday, uh, the 25th of March. So at that time he said he was stepping down and he was moving into a new role as the Professor of Public Health Strategy and Leadership at Trinity College. And this was going to be a role that would examine, I suppose, the mistakes that were made and the things that would need to be different in terms of what would happen if there was another pandemic. At that time, the Taoiseach thanked Tony Houlihan for his service. There were statements issued and uh, all of it was celebrated in terms of wishing him well and in his onward journey. But of course, last week it then emerged that uh, this role that Tony Hulin was going to take up was in fact going to be an open-ended secondment from the Department of Health and that the role would be paid for by the Department of Health. And that's when uh, questions began to be asked. So, Claire, uh, opposition TDs, including the likes of David Conan from Sinn Féin, Duncan Smith from the Labour Party, asking simply, how did this role come about and who and why exactly was the Department of Health going to be paying for it? Why wasn't this going to be paid for uh, by Trinity College? Uh, all these questions came before in Iraq. This health committee last week, there was a private session. Tony Houlihan aimed to answer those questions and to give clarity, but still, even after that, there were still uh, more questions that remained. Now, after that, then, the Department of Health on Thursday did issue a statement in which they said that the department at a senior level had made this decision in order to show innovation and lead by example. They said all arrangements in relation to staffing are the responsibility of the Secretary General who of course is uh, Robert Watt. On Friday the Taoiseach was then asked about it Claire and he decided to pause this secondment for Tony Houlihan to Trinity College and he wanted to hear a full account from Robert Watt as to exactly how this job had come about and uh, why the Department of Health was funding it. So that was the report then that was written by Robert Watt and given to the Health Minister uh, this evening, early this, late this afternoon, I should say, early this evening, Claire. Uh, the details of that, uh, as of yet, uh, the full details as of yet, unknown, but we expect that it will be published over the next couple of days. So we are expecting that over the next couple of days. It's now with the Taoiseach, um, and, and from there, he has said actively that lessons need to be learnt over all of this. Yeah, that seems to be the main takeaway from the Taoiseach so far, Claire, but it'll be interesting to see if once he reads the report if something will have changed in that, but certainly uh, lessons will be learned seems to be the main line coming from the Taoiseach uh, at the moment. From Tony Houlihan's perspective, uh, he made the call himself over the weekend issuing that statement on Saturday saying that he would not proceed on with this comment, that in fact he would go and uh, work in the private sector and that was followed by a statement from Trinity who were uh, disappointed to see this and said that it was a huge loss to public service. Okay, Zara King at the Department of Health. Zara, thank you you for bringing us up to date on that. Well, I'm joined by my panel, as I say, in studio. Uh, just on this story, uh, Fiona, uh, again, you know, we have this report. It's been compiled by um, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, Robert Watt. What's he, what's he telling Stephen Donnelly about what Stephen Donnelly agreed with him or otherwise? Sure, it's fully vindicating the role of the Secretary-General, as it's been written by the Secretary-General himself. Uh, what he'll be telling Stephen Donnelly is the detail uh, around the specifics of the, the internal human resource elements, i.e. that, that uh, Tony Holland was going on secondment from one element of the public service to another and how that was being, being financed. So what would appear to be... Uh, coming out now is that 
he was going to stay on the, the wage bill of the Department of Health for now. He would be disconded to the Department or to, to Trinity College Dublin, but that research funding would become available that Trinity College Dublin could apply for, which they then could use to fund Tony Holohan's role. And that research funding would be indirectly coming from the Department of Health because they have a unit called the Health Research Board, which funnels about uh, 200 million mm. uh, into the, the, the third and fourth level sectors for, for health and public health uh, research. So he'll also be setting out the, the, time, the timeline in terms of how things came about, the interaction that there was with the Department of Taoiseach and the Department of Public Expenditure uh, and, and Reform. And the main thing people will be watching out for will be just that, just those, those financial details. How exactly was that working? Because that doesn't seem to have been pinned down precisely. And it does seem that your, your normal levels of transparency that you, one w- would expect doesn't seem to have been, been followed in this particular case. However, I, I think it will knock on the head a, a couple of you know, canards that have, that have gone out there. The notion that a minister is supposed to be directly involved in an appointment, that has to be slightly corrected. I mean, you, you can't have a minister being solely responsible for appointments out of his own department because then you end up in cronyism. There's actually legislation in place that says there is a specific reason why the Secretary General, as an independent figure, is in, in charge of that. And the other issue is around secondment. There are guidelines on secondment, but they are guidelines. They are not hard and fast rules. There are, for example, officials working in the Department of Finance who transferred over from the National Treasury Management Agency yeah. over a decade ago, and they're still there. The issue being, and and very interesting, how immediately when this story emerged, though we had, you know, Michael McGraw on the programme last week saying this is really highly unusual, this isn't the the way secondments usually work. Then we had the Taoiseach saying, you know, he had no hand, act or part in any of this, clearly um, washing his hands of the whole affair. It's a real mess, isn't it, Dara Kaliri? Yeah, it's a mess. Absolutely. There's no sense in saying otherwise. Let's see what the Secretary General's report says. I think that report should go to the Health Committee of the Oireachtas. Uh, Those involved um, should come to the Health Committee, explain their position, explain their reaction to whatever is laid out. So when you say those involved, now who are you talking about? Well, initially it's within the Department of Health, so it would be the Secretary General. Uh, It would be Robert Watt. Let him come and explain his report. And anybody else he refers to in the report as being involved in the decision should be given the opportunity to explain their role. So we're, we'll await to see the report, let the Health Committee uh, discuss it and make uh, findings on the basis of it. But you know, Fiona has put a context in terms of the actual appointment. I think the appointment was pre... Uh, the announcement was, was, was too early. The funding should have been locked in before the announcement was made. Um, I think it's incredibly unfortunate that we've lost somebody. So the funding should have been locked in, so it should have been uh, clarified that funding should have been it clarified was indeed public the funding. Position, the position of the chair of the professorship in public health, to my view, should have been made available for colleges to bid for. It shouldn't have been given just to one college. So there's a couple of things. That position is a very good idea, but other colleges should have, a, should have had a, a, an opportunity to uh, host it. And then secondly, uh, the funding should have been locked in before it was announced and before those details, which were crucial to the understanding position, um, were all locked in and put in place. Right, okay. So, I mean, where does, where does all of this... Li- I mean, is something like that going, yes, we'll learn that, and, you know, you know in future we, we won't do something like this again? It seems like that these decisions are very much inbuilt into the system. 
Uh, yes, they are, and let the report set the context out of the decision. And, you know, there, there are different contexts around, let it lay out that, let the Health Committee pursue that report. I think the Taoiseach also made an important point at the weekend, that there are also other issues around research, there's issues around academic credentials. They all have to be investigated and interrogated. And if the report doesn't lay out that, then the Health Committee can pursue that. For me... Th- the best place to actually learn the lessons, but maybe do more than that, is to give the health community the opportunity to uh, pursue the report, to interrogate the report, so it's not just a document for the shelf. Um, So this will go before the health committee, Derek Cleary would like to see that happen. Um, Richard, where do you think uh, this goes now? Uh, Who do you think is to blame for all of this, ultimately? Minister, because the minister is, is involved in the appointment for this, his own cabinet didn't even know this appointment was going ahead. His own government were caught by surprise. Even the Taoiseach says, I know nothing about this. I've had no act that part in this. And as Dara said there recently, or just there now, that the other colleges should have been allowed to bid for this as well. And for the experience that Tony Hulan has. Mm. But again, it's second-hand information. It's another mistake again made by the ministers going on appointing somebody without the proper formation in place, not allowing other colleges bid for it, and then turns around and tells their, their cabinet two weeks later, oh, I actually knew about this, but I never told my party colleagues. And they're caught all red-faced, and they know nothing about it. If a government is in government, and a minister is in cabinet, he should also talk to the rest of his cabinet, and to his teacher, and to the Tarnister, and let them know that this... How, da- how damaging is this for government, Dara? No, it's, look, it's, I, I think it's not... The minister isn't in charge of every single appointment um, in his department. It's the SecGen. The SecGen is the person, is, is the accounting officer. The you department. know, I'm just interested because, you know, we had David Cullinan, um, health spokesperson for Sinn Féin, saying that senior civil servants are running rings around the Minister for Health. That's how it looks. I don't accept that either. Um, I do think, uh, and we've, we haven't actually looked, the act that overlooks the management of senior civil servants is, is the Minister and Secretaries Act. It's an act that goes back to predates the foundation of the state. It needs to be updated. There needs to be more accountability on the part of senior civil servants. Um, and, and I've been saying that for a long time. And this needs to be finally drawn a line under in terms uh, of accountability. Accountability to rock those committees, accountability to government. Uh, so you're saying they're, they're, running, they're running the show, they're running the no, show too much I don't accept here. that, but I do think um, there needs to be better ways of uh, getting accountability, of getting answers, um, you know, more effective ways. Um, and that act does need to be updated. Ger, uh, what do you make of all of this? How do you think the public view this now? Um, it's run on. I mean, it, the initial announcement was all, you know, fanfare, isn't this? Isn't this great um, a role for for the CMO in Trinity and and helping with future pandemics? Um, It's turned out that we've lost a senior civil servant and and it could have brought us um, a lot more information and help in the future with, with future pandemics. Yeah, look, there's no doubt the whole thing has been very badly handled. Um, I think there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered, but I think the language is quite interesting around it, particularly what Micheál Martin is using, this idea that lessons will have to be learned. We heard this about the Catherine Savone um, ill-judged appointment. How many other previous ill-judged appointments have we heard where lessons would be learned? But they don't seem to be learned. So hopefully we can actually learn something from this and move on, but I'm not entirely convinced. Okay, well, uh, let's go to another story that's been making headlines today, and that's around these angry truckers who've been protesting against rising fuel prices. They've taken to the streets of the capital today. The hauliers from a breakaway protest group have been protesting over the rising cost of fuel. It was organised by the group calling itself the People of Ireland Against 
Higher fuel prices, Gardaí are monitoring the action and have issued fines today. Well, let's uh, get reaction from someone who is heading up that protest. Uh, Richard, you were there. Um, put the... I was, yeah. You were, yeah. And we heard from you there at the top of the programme. You're angry, as are many people, um, about rising fuel prices. But, I mean, from your point of view, were you happy with how this, this protest went? Well, the protest this morning, uh, trucks and buses actually arrived into Dublin this morning at three o'clock, which I was told myself that they were arriving in. But the guardies told the truckers as they came in that they were going to be fined and they were going to be issued penalty points. And some of the, the convoy turned around and went home because they didn't want to have penalty points because of the their insurance. Um, so some of them turned around scared and, and turned around and pulled out. So the people that stayed on here... So how many, how many of you in total were there then? There was, I think at the moment, there was 10 uh, trucks of government buildings, there was 10 trucks on the port and there was 30 trucks roughly on the bridge. Right, so not, not that many. I mean, the grand scheme of things, there was a lot that you, you were saying you were going to show up in force, but it didn't really turn out no, that way. But they had a lot more en route at 5 and 6 o'clock this morning, which actually turned around when it went on social media that they were getting penalty points and fine. So there was roughly 60 or 70 trucks that actually turned around and buses and returned back to their base because they said they were getting penalty were you, points. Were you fined today? No. Uh, I didn't have a truck on, on this protest today. I came up because they asked me to know what I do as a spokesperson for them, for the fuel crisis. And the other thing they had was the government released an 18 million euro uh, fund for the haulage sector. But it doesn't cover anyone unless you have a road haulage licence. So if you're, if you're a supplier of goods, of your own goods, you don't qualify. So if you're a shop and you're supplying goods to people, you don't qualify. So it only covers you if you have a road haulage licence. If you're a quarry and you've got your own trucks, if you're a pig farmer and you're, supplying your own, and you're transporting your own pigs to the fact, you do not qualify for this 18 million. It only covers 38% of the trucks that are running on this country that, that you have a road haulage licence. Because if you're, a, if you're a producer, you don't need a road haulage licence. Okay, to, to so, you're, so you're, you're not happy about this. Um, now, you, you want to cap petrol, um, the idea of capping fuel. Um, and I think the, the kind of figures that you're putting it at, we haven't seen in 12 years. Right, okay, so in, in roughly in 2020, the fuel prices were around 130. Okay, so if the government at now capped it, we'll just use the likes of petrol price at the moment at 130. If they cap the price of 130 at the moment for their tax, the VRT, or the VAT and the excise mm. duty, and after that we will pay a fuel increase if there's an increase, but we won't pay tax on the increase. At the moment, the government are taking one euro in every litre of petrol, whereas in 2020 they were only taking 62 cents a litre on it. So we all know that the government needs tax to run this country, but with inflation and the price of fuel going up, the, the amount of tax that we're paying on fuel also rises. So if we put a cap on the tax that they can take right. on fuel, then it would make a difference to every household in Ireland. Any merit in that at all? Um, and we're, we're hearing these lines from the government tonight about the, the, the VAT drop um, from 13.5% to 9%, but it's on gas and electricity. Fuel's not going to be touched. So fuel has been touched. Uh, there's a 350 million euro excise uh, reduction uh, that's resulted in a 15 cent reduction. Um, on, on petrol, smaller reductions in diesel. There is absolutely a serious problem. Uh, and, you know, in terms of uh, the road haulage sector, you know, we're working with a lot of the organisations there. Um, so Richard's support... They're not happy. Richard has already referred to the support scheme. That's a scheme that's going to be under review. We are in different 
our hands are incredibly tied as a government because this is an area that's highly regulated by the EU in terms of that, in terms of excise duty. Uh, what, what the proposals are tonight, I understand they have to go to Cabinet on Wednesday before they're agreed, are to the very limit of what can be legally done. Uh, and we're continuing, as the government are continuing to work at EU level to secure further reductions. So, you know, Which we have across, the emergency across assistance. Across more than scheme. gas and electricity. Well, yes, and in terms of give them more flexibility in that, because if, I think it's important, at some stage this crisis will finish. If we make um, changes to VAT now without EU agreement, we will end up in a much higher VAT rate on a lot of things than we currently have because we have quite a number of concessions. So we have to be careful. There is the diesel rebate scheme, which is also in place for all years. And as Richard said, the support scheme, that support scheme is an 18 million investment. It is under review. And yes, he is right. We need to expand it to smaller users. Right, okay. Uh, Ger, you know, and we hear the, the, the plight of motorists and, and the difficulties of the prices at the pump, what people are facing right now, um, also about these measures being announced tonight that won't apply um, to those uh, prices on petrol and diesel. Um, how difficult a situation are we in now and how, how precarious is it looking? Because we're hearing about like energy security and, and what we have there as backup. Um, should we reach the point of real issues with supply getting into this country? Yeah, look, there's no doubt that fuel prices are affecting everyone. You don't have to be a motorist to be impacted by them at the moment because the transport and delivery of all goods has gone through the roof because of all of this. So I, I think that was the thing with the hauliers today. This is not just about hauliers. It is about everyone in society at the moment. However, I think the government is, is caught. I suppose there is scope there for excise to reduce excise further. There's no doubt about that. But the problem is they have climate change targets. It's going to be very hard to reconcile the two because they have a commitment, obviously, not to be supporting fossil fuels. The unintended consequence of any sort of uh, reduction in the cost of fuel is to be seen to be supporting them. So I think that's a problem. I think going forward, though, I mean, if um, there is EU sanctions on Russian um, oil, that's only anything that constrains uh, supply of oil is going to push prices up further. So I think the cost of living is going to be an issue that's going to have to be revisited constantly by the government at the moment. It is not something that would be sorted by a VAT reduction. Mm. OK, we'll have to leave that there for now. Yeah, I think it's important before you leave that there is a commitment that it will be under constant review. And, you know, there's 550 million yeah. before tonight's announcements already gone in. I know. Government I'm, gets I'm, this we are hearing we about that. on top of it. Uh, well, this is the thing. How, how many times will we have to go back to the drawing board on that one? Well, my thanks to Geraldine, um, Dara, Richard and Fiona are staying with me coming up next to the war in Europe. And can we keep our promises to those fleeing conflict? Stay with us. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back. In Ukraine, the country's forces are preparing for an expected renewed attack on the eastern Donbass region, with some reports that Ukraine has already repelled some Russian assaults. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had said today that tens of thousands of civilians are expected to have been killed in Mariupol alone, as the full extent of the devastation in Ukraine becomes clearer. Austrian's Chancellor has held talks in Moscow with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Ireland is supporting a possible EU ban on Russian oil imports. We know that the Commission is also now working on a future package that we uh, hope we can see soon that will involve oil as well. And uh, the European Union uh, is spending hundreds of millions of euros uh, on importing oil from Russia. Uh, that is certainly contributing to financing this war. Uh, and uh, in our view, uh, we need to cut off that uh, financing of war. My panellists are with me, Dara Kaliri, Richard O'Donoghue, Fionan Sheehan, and we're also joined now by UNICEF Ireland Executive Director Peter Power. And Peter, um, you're operating in five border countries. That's where UNICEF around, uh, around Ukraine. Um, tell us just how volatile the situation is right now in terms of the numbers fleeing Ukraine. Yes, uh, Claire, we're operating on the border countries, but we're also operating inside Ukraine. We've been there for 25 years and we have 140 people uh, inside there, uh, offices in Mariupol and other places. So we're obviously deeply concerned for our people inside there who are right on the front line delivering aid. But in terms of the border countries, uh, our sister UN agency reckons that at 3.5 million uh, people have now left the uh, uh, Ukraine. One in every two children in Ukraine has now left their homes. One in every two, that's 3.5 million children. Uh, and these are children who have had to leave their families, their homes, their communities, their education behind them. And we're hearing harrowing stories now, right on the board, I think we've all heard them really, of parents, you know, fathers having to leave their children, not knowing will they ever see them again. I mean, this is the cost of, of, of this terrible uh, war. And uh, children often, without being the perpetrators, they are the chief victims uh, in many, many cases. Mm. And I, I, I can only imagine having to explain to your child why you are staying behind and why they are leaving the country. Yeah. An incredibly um, devastating and traumatic situation for so many families. But Peter, you know, tell us about sort of the, the pressure points, I suppose, in Europe right now, because people are fleeing in, in different stages, aren't they? Yeah. They're coming now from the east of the country, where, where a lot of, of the, the current assaults are, are based. And um, what sort of pressure is that putting on countries outside of Ukraine? Yeah, it's coming in waves. Obviously, the first wave, people left uh, Kyiv and in the uh, middle and western areas. And now there's a second wave coming from the east. Uh, as the anticipated fighting will intensify over the uh, the coming weeks, so there could be, you know, another 
significant number of people crossing over the borders. So those people who cross over are obviously putting intense pressures on the systems of the countries who've done enormous work and should be complimented in terms of welcoming millions of people into their countries. But nevertheless, their systems are under pressure. When the people cross the border initially, they need shelter, they need food. Many of the children are actually traumatised, psychologically traumatised. They've seen things that no child should obviously ever see. They need a care and protection. They need advice. So we have uh, centres, what we call blue dot reception centres, across the five European borders, providing that sort of immediate humanitarian aid. And then they need assistance. How did they progress from there into all the other countries, including Ireland? Well, how are we responding to all of this? Housing Minister Dara O'Brien met with representatives of the construction and property sectors today to look at housing options for Ukrainian refugees. Afterwards, construction industry representatives gave their reaction. I think if we look at what's possible by the Minister's office and the Department of Housing and other offices, if we look at the regulations that surround planning, if we can create greater certainty and speed around some of the conditions and the planning permissions that are currently on commence, there's a huge opportunity there. But likewise, we have a huge amount of vacant and existing stock that could be utilised to help benefit those within this crisis. What's going to be done for Ukrainians is going to be very good when the Ukrainians leave for Irish people in the future, because for uh, vacant housing, for the fair deal scheme of houses that are sitting there, uh, for town centres and also for planning missions that are sitting that maybe there's problems with them that they're not being built on at the moment. For those problems and to get those problems sorted out is going to be fantastic for us all in the long term. Um, just listening there to, I suppose, the challenge that's ahead, it's a really big challenge, isn't it, Derek Caleri? I mean, we already have a, a housing crisis on our hands and they're talking about the need to turn around an additional 30,000 homes now to accommodate Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, it's a big challenge, but I think um, we have responded relatively well so far. There has been a few uh, gaps, but given the volume that are beginning to arrive, we need to up that game. That's why Dara Bryan had that meeting today. Um, I gather it was solution-focused that he will be going to Cabinet with a number of proposals around it. I think as Pat David said there, it, there will be a legacy out of this that will benefit all of us. Um, but if we can get procedures to move things quicker, so Dara Bryan has done a huge amount of work in the vacant um, building space. It hasn't moved quick enough on the ground, we've got to resolve that. There's investment re ready to go there. Um, local communities have responded magnificently around the country. I think that has to be acknowledged. But there's a coordination element going into place now in every county through the community forums to coordinate that on a local basis as well. But I think also, as Peter just referenced there, we are moving into a different phase of those that are coming in. They will need much more expert care than maybe uh, can be given in an ordinary yeah, household. That's exactly. And that's very important that that's put in place. And that's exactly what I was thinking when Peter was talking about the children that are coming over and the borders, trauma, devastated and, and separated families and, and what accommodation options we have for them here, Fiona. It's a huge challenge for government. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of focus in this country in the last two years about the disruption that's caused by taking kids out of out of school for extended periods of time during COVID-19. So in this case, you're talking about kids who've been removed from their home, from their families, they moved to a completely different country where they don't don't speak the language uh, and expecting that that they will uh, adapt uh, somehow. We're going to have we're going to hit a problem fairly fast. It's similar to the other countries along the border. They were able to absorb so many people in a short period of time, but eventually you saw the, the pressures that were coming to bear in, in Poland and Moldova. 
the, the same thing is, is going to happen here. Yeah, we've been able to absorb the initial wave mm -hmm. of people coming in here with uh, private households, hotels and B&Bs. But if we don't get building fast, we're going to end up with a situation, an estimate of about 10,000 people would know where to stay by the end of, of this month. We don't want a situation where we're basically stacking people high uh, out in some warehouse out at Dublin Airport because there is literally nowhere else to go. So we're going to have to cut corners here. And it's a bit like the, the pandemic uh, scenario that we were in over the last two years. Decisions will be, have to, to be made fast. They won't always be the right decisions, but there isn't going to be time to wait around. Um, Richard, that is the challenge there. And, and rapid planning decisions that have to be made now in order um, to, to meet this demand. 100%. But again, when you look at rapid planning, when you, when you leave the large towns, you, you can't have rapid planning because a lot of the large towns in County Limerick can't care for this because the capacity within their storage system, there's no infrastructure. So it'll mainly have to be based within the cities. They can't build in the counties. The infrastructure's not there. And this is what has been shown up for the last 12 months, two years, three years. There's no infrastructure there. The Red Cross have actually refused properties within, within towns and, and villages because of lack of transport to get people. So you're saying that they shouldn't be built outside of urban areas? Well, they should be because there should be proper infrastructure there, but the problem is they can't be built there because the infrastructure or the connectivity is not there for the people. Now, there's been a lot of places have been offered, convents that have been closed down, ready to be refurbished. We looked at one rough in Brough recently where there was two, can actually uh, house up to 200 people in it, an ideal location for them. But there was other areas then that they actually refused because they said there was no transport for them to get to where they need to go to. So we have to look at the large towns. We have to look where there, there is, is connectivity for people so they can actually connect. And going back to the point, I'm a father for myself, I can't imagine having to leave your child behind you and, and, and having to go what those children and families have to go through. Um, I think it's important, Claire, though, uh, there is infrastructure in place. There's a lot of vacant premises within small towns. Now, nothing yes. has been done about those vacant premises when we know we have a huge housing crisis. And to date, they've stalled on all of this. The, the red tape has been brought up. The red tape has been there. Yeah. In fairness to Darwin, so he has identified it. So Darwin has put funding in place and has been addressing the red tape issue. Richard makes a point about local transport, and he's right. Local link organisations that do local transport in rural areas have put a proposal on the table that should be funded to provide direct service and direct connectivity. Um, but there are really good examples. We have seen schools in rural areas get an influx of pupils. But as I said, it is also important that we put the appropriate services in place yeah, along with accommodation. Let's talk about those services and those needs that will be there for children now. And we are hearing, they're, they're discussing exploring all option, options when it comes to financial rewards for people accommodating um, refugees in, in family homes. W would that accommodation best serve families right now, do you think, Peter? Well, I mean, I think the actual accommodation is, is one thing, but providing for the, the needs of the children themselves is a separate thing. I can't comment on the capacity of, of Ireland, but what I do know is that these children, as Fiona has said, they arrive in a country, they don't speak the language. Uh, I know my own children are meeting children who are being absorbed into local schools. So they need education. As I said, they do need psychological uh, and social care because of the traumas that they've seen and the trauma that, that they've experienced traveling across an entire continent. And this is completely novel to all of them. And how do you think we're set up for that? 
Well, I mean, we, you know, like every country, we, we've got constraints, uh, but it's nothing compared to the countries on the eastern part of Europe that have absorbed millions of people. We're talking 20, 30,000 so far. Even that, proportionally, it's more than, than the United Kingdom. Uh, so uh, as Ireland has always displayed a massive generosity, what UNICEF would be concerned about as time goes on and this conflict and this uh, humanitarian crisis right across Europe is going to last for a very, very long time, is to provide the long-term supports uh, for these people so that their uh, mental health and other, other than just a pure accommodation is catered for. And that is not a simple issue to deal with insofar as children are concerned. There are professionals coming that, sh and that's actually one area where red tape needs to be cut for registering doctors, for professionals who are coming from the Ukraine, who have the language, who have the skills, they are facing a, a, a nightmare in terms of red tape. That's one area that would make a big difference very so quickly. So this is, this is um, for medical medics. council registrations, Department who, of Health issues. Who can assist with the Ukrainians Absolutely. themselves. And I think there are GPs around the country, I know, that are hosting and willing to host, but they need the paperwork around that kind of thing. That's something that would make a big difference. You get somebody with the language, mm. with the skills and with the culture, and that's what we should be prioritising. Okay, and briefly, if you don't know, there's, a, there's a task force around all of this. Is there a sense within government that they can pull all these strands together to, to, to make it work, or are we very much you do set up a effort here scrambling here? Tony Holan at the top of it, and, and that in, 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 there, there still seems to be a, 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 a feeling that we're unclear about who exactly is in charge. Is it is it the minister for children? Is he the one specifically responsible here? Is the minister for housing, and who exactly is stringing it together? Again, that, that'll have to come about in time. What we are now seeing, and it's quite clear, this is not going to be a short-term thing. I, I think when you were over on the border, I was over the border about a month ago, and there were people coming across who thought, we'll be going back home within a couple of weeks. These people are going to be here for quite some period of time. Okay, my thanks to Peter. My other guests are staying on. Coming up, that big political battle for the future of France. Stay with us. French President Emmanuel Macron is facing a fierce political battle with far-right leader Marine Le Pen for the French presidency. Both candidates came through the first round of voting in the election yesterday and have now started a two-week campaign which is being billed as a battle for the future of France. Paris correspondent Ross Cullen told me more about the dramatic election. No, Claire, not really. We have seen over the last five years the strength of the populist movements on the left and right of French politics, this surge to the extremes. Particularly, we saw the strong showing from the far left in the 2022 first round, which was on, on Sunday. Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, really uh, hot on the heels of Marine Le Pen herself, of course, on the far right. She was joined for this election on the far right by somebody even outflanked her even more extreme right, Eric Zemmour, and he uh, was also popular, particularly energetic campaign around November and December uh, early on in the campaign. So we have seen this uh, people flocking to the extremes or around about the centre with Emmanuel Macron's centrist uh, movement. So the strength of the extremes, the strength of the uh, far right has not been a surprise because, as you, as you mentioned, Marine Le Pen was in the uh, second round runoff in 2017 and so she has made it through again to uh, the 2022 runoff and that, that in itself is not a shock. So Ross, what does Emmanuel Macron need to do here to retain power? 
Well, he needs to convince the voters of the other parties. And there has been some good news on Sunday evening after the defeated candidates gave their speeches. We heard from people like the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo. She was running for the socialists, a very poor showing, uh, not even reaching the 5% threshold where she gets to keep her deposit. But she said, uh, my supporters should vote for Emmanuel Macron. The centre-right candidate, Valérie Procas, urged her supporters to vote for Emmanuel Macron. Even the Green candidate, the Communist candidate, all saying you should get behind Emmanuel Macron to build a barrier to the far right to try to create a wall that would stop Marine Le Pen and her populist movement taking the Elysee Palace. He has to try to uh, promote his policies over the past five years. He's introduced some left-wing measures, some right-wing measures, uh, all to do with his drive through the centre of, of French politics to try to convince them that he, these controversial reforms like pensions restructuring are worthwhile, are going to help uh, the French state in the long run with some fresh ideas. Because Claire, he was the fresh movement. He was the surprise politician in 2017. He no longer has that element. He is the incumbent. And so the pressure is on him to show what he can do next in the coming five years. Given that we know France is a powerhouse in the EU, how important is this uh, election for the European Union, Ross? And what would the implications be of a Le Pen win? Oh, it is very important, particularly if we look uh, to uh, Hungary earlier on in April, where they re-elected uh, Viktor Orban. Uh, we have seen Marine Le Pen and I mentioned Eric Zemmour. Uh, that we've seen both Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour go to Hungary uh, in 2021, uh, fond uh, connections with uh, Viktor Orban and the populist nationalist movement uh, in Hungary. And so a Le Pen presidency would be a major shift for the European Union. Now, she no longer wants to leave the EU. She has also disassociated herself from her previous policy of pulling France out of the euro, reinstating the French franc. So it's not that extreme, but she does want to reform the European Union into more of a European alliance of like-minded nations along the same lines of a European policy proposed by uh, uh, Viktor Orban. If Macron stays in power, we know that it is uh, continuity of power, continuity of message. He really is trying uh, to almost be the major figure within the EU now that Angela Merkel has left power in Germany. Uh, so we do see the two different sides of the European policy. Macron vehemently pro-Europe and uh, Marine Le Pen a strong Eurosceptic. Ross Cullen in Paris, thank you for joining us with that analysis tonight. Um, my panel is still with me, TD's Derek Kaleri, Richard O'Donoghue, and independent.ie Ireland editor Fionnán Sheehan. Uh, Fionnán, what does it say about the state of politics, this uh, rise in support for the far left and far right combined? I think they took up half the vote in this first electoral runoff in France. Yeah, and it, it shows what happened uh, five years ago is, is no fluke whatsoever. The, the traditional left-right split in, in French politics is, has been decimated on, on, on this uh, occasion for the second time uh, in a row. You're also looking at, when you add up the Zemmour and, the, and Le Pen vote together, you're getting almost a third of French voters are, in effect, voting for far-right candidates one way or another. You go back a generation to Marine Le Pen's father, um, he, he got through to the second round back in 2002. At that point, people saw it as a bit of a fluke result. It's now becoming quite, quite the pattern uh, there. And yet, at the same time, you'd have to say Macron's destruction of the old traditional French system seems to be, seems to be maintaining. He is still very much 
the, the front runner in, in this in this campaign and it's at the moment you you need a, a dramatic events to happen in the next two weeks for him to lose. Yeah, it is still on the knife on knife edge according to the polls I think they have them at about 49 and 51 percent but um, Dara I suppose uh, you know with more than half those voters going with, with an extreme and, and, and the rise of the, of the far right vote there a sense that mainstream politicians just aren't helping when it comes to the cost of living crisis. Yeah and that gives you a sense that it's a big issue across uh, Europe. Um, also uh, President Macron I don't think he fought particularly energetic campaign for the first phase. Hopefully he will do so for the next two weeks. But it's also interesting, the French parliament is more traditional. Uh, the presidential elections tend to break into this uh, very far divide that were discussed. There will be parliamentary elections in a few weeks' time, which will be the more traditional parties. So those on the ground uh, still seem to be uh, reflecting more tradition. But he's a huge amount of work to do, and he has to be much more in tune than he has been to date over the course of the next two weeks. He cannot take it for granted. And I think, unlike in five years ago, this is a real contest. Yeah, he, um, and, and one of the, the, the paths he's going down now is because he spent so so long, I suppose, working on the whole Ukraine crisis situation and busy over in Moscow that he took his eye off the ball at, at events at home. Look, that's always the challenge for any incumbent. Uh, I gather he's gone to the north of France tonight to campaign uh, right into Marie Le Pen's um, heartland. Uh, and you know that's where he needs to be to convince people that he understands the domestic pressures, uh, that he understands the cost of living pressures and that he's leading on that front. France is very important in terms of Europe uh, and it's very important that they lead in terms of the EU as well. But you've got to also look after the domestic voters, mm. understand, hear their concerns and most importantly act on them. Um, yeah, the government would know that uh, fairly well. Richard, yellow vest protests in France, um, they took place a few years ago, not happy about rising energy prices, not happy with Macron over how he was um, planning uh, to, to impose a tax on fuel. What do you think of Marine Le Pen and what she's doing and obviously getting votes from people like well, the yellow vest protesters, you, people you in your camp? see here. With, with mainstream government the same thing is happening there because people now are feeling the pain so you have the domestic voters that are there they're feeling the pain they feel that the government have not been listening they feel that the government haven't protected them through crisis the same thing is happening here and that's why people are gone to the far right even if they don't want to go far right they're going far right because they see that it might be a change of their way of living and it's, it comes down to, again, the cost of living, energy crisis across the whole lot of Europe. It's, it's going to be felt there as well. And people will change. Like traditionally here, you saw Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael voters changing the last time uh, to the likes of independence and Sinn Féin. The same thing is happening out here. People are saying that the mainstream government... Now, are you putting there. yourself in the same category as Marine Le Pen as an independent? I'm standing here for the people and I've always stood for the people on the ground. But what I'm saying here is across Europe, you can see a change on people voting and it doesn't matter. They're not going back to Main Street uh, government and they're looking because they, they look at them like if they failed and they failed the people. And that's what I'm saying. So I'm not I am Richard O'Donoghue and I support I'm representing Limerick here. All right. OK. Um, so you're not going to say, you know, where your allegiances would lie if you were in, no. in France tonight. No, 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 no. Uh, it, it, is it a problem, though, that goes beyond the French election, beyond um, 
beyond France and, uh, and Europe as well, Fiona Owen. I was worried there about Lexit for a second and Limerick <laughs> leaving the EU. But anyway, um, it, it does, in, in that France plays such a prominent role uh, in the development of the EU and, and, and taking leadership role, not always to the benefit of other members. You remember from the, the Sarkozy era, you'd have to say. But if, if Le Pen was to be elected, this would, this would put Brexit in the halfpenny place. It would mean you would have a, a country, a leading country at the heart of Europe, basically becoming obstructionist towards any integration at the European level. And we are seeing now that actually there, there is a requirement, particularly coming from the eastern side, for Europe to take more of a role in terms of, of the development of it, its defence capabilities, in terms of cooperation between individual countries. So the, the, a, a, it will have massive implications for, for us and for Europe as a whole, uh, this election outcome. Mm, we'll have to see where it goes. That uh, second round uh, runoff will be on April 24th. Um, some news just reaching us tonight. Garthi and Sligo are investigating the discovery of a man's body in unexplained circumstances. The scene there has been preserved. Um, well, that is it from us. My thanks to the panel who joined me tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.